Numbers 23:19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should not change his mind. I'm sorry, that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And Joshua 23:14 says, And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. This is the word of God. Thanks, Patty. Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, you can grab them and turn to Isaiah chapter 11. If we have not met, my name is Brenton Wade, and I'm one of the pastors here at uh, VBF, and it is a great privilege, really, truly a great honor to teach God's Word this morning. I do not take that for granted. Before we begin, uh, let's take a moment to uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, we admit that there is no one like you, that there is no glory like your glory. And we come today, Lord, to adore and worship you. And so as we open up your holy word, we ask for your help to see your glory shine brightly through it. Help us to clearly and truly hear what you're speaking to us this morning. Lord, open the eyes of those that are here that are spiritually blind, that they may see your beauty. And help us, Lord, to place our hope solely and firmly in the person of Jesus Christ, our King. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we finished the book of Acts last Sunday after being in Acts for over a year. And it was a wonderful study that we had in the book of Acts. This Sunday and for the remainder of December, we transition into a Christmas series uh, that we're excited for. And in this series, we're not focusing on the birth details of uh, the story of the coming of Jesus, but rather we're focusing on the main idea behind Christmas. What is the main idea? Why is Christmas so significant? The coming of Jesus is not just the history of a human born in a manger, or a human birth announced to shepherds, or magi coming and bringing gifts to a human. The significance of Christmas is that the coming of Jesus is the coming of a man that was and is God. The divine became man. The creator stepped into creation in a way he had not before. So we're calling uh, the Christmas series the coming of the divine. And each week we're going to ask and answer a different question. And our goal is that we would take this big idea of God becoming man and we would look at it each week from a different angle, from the view of a different question. 
And the goal is really that we would treasure and worship God in our hearts more this Christmas season. The goal is worship, that we would honor and adore him. And so this week's question is who is coming? Who is coming? Now, before we look at Isaiah chapter 11, let me give you some background. Isaiah is a book that is a collection of prophecies given by God through the prophet Isaiah. And it takes place at a time in Israel's history when the nation of Israel was divided. God had rescued and blessed this people of Israel and had brought them into a land that he promised to give them. And he had made a covenant agreement with them, which is really an astounding thing when we think about it, that God made an agreement with man. And he promised that if the people worshipped him and only him and obeyed his statutes and his commands... He would bless them in the land. But if they turned to other gods, if they pursued other gods other than him, judgment would follow. And so God is faithful to his covenant at that time. And uh, Israel continues to live a life of sin. They chase after all these gods of the other nations. They still bring many of the sacrifices that God wanted them to bring, but their heart is not solely devoted to the Lord. It would be like today, somebody coming to church week after week, but, but not having their heart solely devoted to the Lord. And so God gives them over to division. The nation of Israel was made up of 12 tribes, and so 10 of the tribes broke off to the north. And two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, broke off to the south. And there's essentially this civil war divide between the nation of Israel. The northern kingdom is then called Israel, probably because they had the most number of tribes. And the southern kingdom is called Judah, after the tribe of Judah. And so Isaiah is in this context. He lives in the city of Jerusalem in Judah. And he has been called by God as a prophet to declare God's word to these divided nations. And he is warning them. Much of Isaiah is filled with warnings. He's warning them, turn back to the Lord. Because if not, there is more judgment to come. Turn back to God. Which itself is a grace of God. God had already made it clear what was going to happen. And yet, God continued to send prophets to warn the people again and again. Which is a grace. But Isaiah is not just warnings. There are many beautiful promises that God gives his people in this book. Promises of a future salvation. And Isaiah chapter 11 is one of those glorious promises. And so let's look now at verse 1 together. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. I love what uh, Stephen Caselli says about this verse. He says, the prophet Isaiah did not have a Christmas tree. He had a stump. A stump with a single shoot growing from it. That is a real Christmas tree, according to Isaiah. But what does it mean? Why does the prophet call our attention to this strange little Christmas stump? I love prophecy in the Bible because it teaches truth with vivid imagery. And we have so much great imagery in this chapter. And here, the prophet paints a picture of the people of Israel as a stump. Why? 
Well, the future that is coming is further judgment. The people will continue to pursue other gods, and God will give them over, not just to division among themselves, but to other enemies and nations coming in and conquering them. Uh, Not long after, the Assyrian people will conquer the northern kingdom, and the Babylonian people will conquer the southern kingdom. And it will be as if Israel is nothing. This one great nation that God had called and redeemed, the great tree of Israel, has fallen. And is yet now just a stump. Often in the Bible, Israel is described in relationship to uh, King David because he's, he's the chosen king that God called, a man after God's heart. He's, he's one of those characters in the Bible that we, we, we look to as a great example in many ways. But here he refers to the stump of Jesse. And John Calvin notes here, on this account, he did not call him David, but Jesse. Because of the rank of that family had sunk so low that it appeared to be not a royal family, but that of a mean peasant, such as the family of Jesse was when David was unexpectedly called to the government of the kingdom. Israel is going to be at a very low place very soon. And yet, in the midst of this, God makes a promise that there will come forth a shoot tiny sign of life coming from this stump. And while all hope seems lost, God promises the shoot will begin to grow and that a branch will grow and will bear fruit and God will restore the tree of his people by this shoot. Verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What is this shoot? Well, we learn that it is a man. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. It is a promised man to come, and not just a man, but a man that is anointed by the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, when God was going to use somebody, often they would be anointed with oil. But often we also read that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. God would empower them for the task he had given them. But this is no regular anointing of the Spirit. This is a threefold anointing of the Spirit. This man is going to be lavished with a spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And this is no ordinary man. This is the Messiah. Messiah is a word that means the anointed one or the chosen one. And the English word Messiah comes from a Hebrew word, but the Greek translation of that word is Christos, which we translate in English as Christ. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It is the title of Jesus. He is the anointed Savior, the King the deliverer who was promised to come. And here, around the 8th century BC, Isaiah prophesies of this Messiah who will come 700 years later in the form of a baby named Jesus. He did not say the Messiah would come as a massive oak tree, but humbly as a shoot springing forth from this stump. 
The prophecies in the Bible about Jesus, about the Messiah, are astounding. There's a college professor named uh, Peter Stoner in the 20th century, and he wrote a book called Science Speaks, where he calculated just the probability, the likelihood, that eight of the most straightforward prophecies about Jesus could occur. Uh, These were really simple things, like he was born in Bethlehem, which either happens or it doesn't. Very straightforward. And the likelihood that he calculated of all eight coming true was one in, I don't even know how to say the number. I, I, think, it's, I think it's like a quintillion or something like that. It's one in the 10th, 10 to the 17th power. So that's, ten, that's 17 zeros. Uh, for reference, you have a one in one million chance of being struck by lightning this year. That's six zeros. That's actually lower than I thought, which is a little frightening. But... Um, <laughs> You have a 1 in 302 million chance of winning the Mega Millions jackpot. That's eight zeros. And even if you're the most devoted college basketball fan, you have a 1 in 120 billion chance of getting a perfect March Madness bracket, which has never happened, never been done before. And 120 billion is 11 zeros. The probability for eight prophecies was a number with 17 zeros. But then he goes on to calculate what the probability would be for 48 fulfilled prophecies by Jesus. And the probability is 1 in 10 to the 157th. 157 zeros. And the point is clear that there's no possible way that this happened by accident. Consider how incredible this is. That what was prophesied came true. I was recently inspired by this sermon by a pastor named Steve Lawson to look up as many prophecies as I could about Jesus. And here is just a fraction. It was prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but that he would live in Nazareth. He'd be called a Nazarene, but that he'd start his ministry in Galilee. That he would be born of a virgin. That he would come from the line of Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then the tribe of Judah, then the family of Jesse, then the line of David that he would be called Emmanuel, that when he was born, he would spend time in Egypt, that when he was born, there would be a massacre of young children, that one would come before him who was a preacher, a forerunner like Elijah, that he would be rejected by his own people, that he would speak in parables, that he would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, that he would be betrayed by a friend, The price of betrayal would be 30 pieces of silver, and those pieces of silver would be used to buy a potter's field. What kind of detail is that? That he would be falsely accused but would stand silent. That he would be spit on and struck. That he would be crucified, but his bones would not be broken, while the thieves on the two crosses beside him would have their bones broken that he would be given vinegar to drink on the cross, that he would be mocked, that soldiers would gamble for his garments, that he would be forsaken by God, and that he would pray for his enemies on the cross, that his side would be pierced, that he would die and be buried among the rich, and that he would rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, and be seated at the right hand of God the Father where he is today. It is truly incredible to consider that all of these things were prophesied hundreds of years before, and they all came to pass. 
And so when we ask the question, who is coming, it's not some obscure man. It's not a great leader that people liked, and so then retroactively we decided to make him significant. This was the Messiah who was promised long ago, foretold long ago, and all these things came to pass. This is the person that we celebrate at Christmas time. But historically, I thought this was interesting. Advent has historically had two focuses. Christmas has historically had two focuses. Um, I was doing some research. I don't think we know exactly when the church began to celebrate Advent. I think there's a mention of it in the fourth century, but uh, we see it more consistently in the sixth century, which is pretty early on. But today the church uh, celebrates Advent with um, typically one focus, uh, the birth of Jesus. But historically, Advent had two focuses. The first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Uh, typically, they would, they would take the two first weeks, the two weeks of Advent that were the first weeks, and they would celebrate, they would look at, they would study the second coming of Christ. And then the last two weeks of Advent, they would look at the first coming of Christ. Uh, this is why we sing songs like uh, what we just sang, born thy people to deliver, born a child yet a king, born to reign in us forever. So it is about his birth, and yet we are asking, now thy gracious kingdom bring. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, come again. And when we were planning the series, uh, we just came to this question for this week. We just said, okay, this week's going to be who is coming. Um, and we knew what we wanted to talk about, that we wanted to talk about he was the promised Messiah. But I didn't realize it then, but this was the perfect question for this first week of Advent. Because the question is not who has come, but the question is who is coming. And that's why I chose this text in Isaiah chapter 11. Because it has this prophecy about the birth of Jesus coming from the stump of Jesse, but actually the focus of this chapter is the rule and the reign of the Messiah at his second coming. And so I want to look at verses three through nine now and fix our hope, our longing on the second coming of the Messiah. And if you want to take notes, uh, I'm going to give three reasons from this text that we ought to hope and long for the second coming of Christ. These are things that really are the foundation of hope for Christians. The reasons for us to long for his coming again. So let's read in verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The first thing that we see about the coming of the Messiah is that the Messiah's reign is righteous. The Messiah's reign is righteous. Our coming king is no ordinary man. Men make judgments, 
decide disputes and, and make decisions based on the facts that they see and the information that they hear. That's how we decide things. That's how we make decisions. But this man is different. He sees the heart. God sees the heart. He doesn't look on the outward appearance, but he knows every thought and intention of a person's heart. And so when he rules, he rules in righteousness. It says that he protects the poor and the meek while bringing justice to the wicked. It says that righteousness and faithfulness are so much part of his character and who he is that it's as if he's wearing them as a belt. Jesus would later say on his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the meek. The poor and the meek are those who recognize their great need of God. We live in America today in a society of self-sufficiency. Uh, our lives are built upon the American dream of, by our hard work, we can make it. We can make a name for ourselves. We can do good by our country and our family. But God is not interested in men and women who desire to make a name for themselves. He saves the poor, the meek, the needy ones who recognize that they need him. Do you recognize your great need for a savior? Because we learn here that the righteous judge is coming. We are given a picture of this coming in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth, see the same imagery in Revelation and here, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. In our text, it says, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God is so powerful that it is just his word. I mean, think about a, a king or an influential person. When they speak, other people act, right? They do things for them. We see similar here, but God is different. His word is not dependent on others carrying it out. His word has the power in it to carry out what he wants to do. It's like in creation when he spoke and things came to be. He didn't speak and then wait for people to follow the orders. He just spoke and it came to be. Maybe you here today are dealing with something hard. Maybe you're dealing with false accusations from somebody. Maybe you're dealing with sin that others have committed against you. Maybe you're just tired of watching on the news injustice and lies. Well, here's a word of hope for you. The righteous king is coming, and he will put an end to all wickedness. 
Let's now look at verses six through eight. I love the imagery that Isaiah uses here. Again, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. I'm sure that the mothers in the room had a mini heart attack when I read that the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. But this is, this is an incredible image here. Do you see this? Animals that would normally attack one another, a wolf and a lamb, a leopard and a goat, a, a, a calf, a lion, a little child leading them, a cow and a bear, um, a lion eating straw, and then a nursing child playing over the hole of a snake. What is the prophet saying here? Well, we read at the end of at the beginning of verse nine, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. He's foretelling of a time when there will be total and complete peace. No bloodshed at all. There shall not be hurt, and there shall not be destruction. And so the second thing that we learn here is that the Messiah's reign will establish peace. Isn't this what all great rulers and kings and government officials desire? Peace, true peace. And yet, we learn that this will only come under the rule of one king. The king that in Isaiah chapter 9 is called the prince of peace. Here we see again the picture in Revelation of the fulfillment of this. And this is just a sweet verse to hold onto. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Speaking of God, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Are you going through a difficult season right now? Are you in a season where you're struggling with physical pain? Maybe it's loss. Maybe it's heartache in some way. Find great hope this morning in the promise that the Messiah will come again and he will establish everlasting peace. Honestly, the last couple of weeks in... uh, my house have not been the best. Um, I rolled my ankle, which wasn't a big deal, but it made me immobile for a couple of days. But then on the heels of that, Andy got really sick, and I was feeling super anxious when she was sick. And then after she got better, I got sick, and I'm getting over that now. And relatively, you know, there are people who are suffering much worse things than those things. But it's just been a, a tough couple of weeks in our house. It's, it's just not been the best time. But the times that are hard make these promises sweet. That one day the Lord, the God of peace, will establish a day with no sickness, no anxiety, and no pain. 
Lastly, let's look at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. What a great image. As the waters cover the sea. What does that mean? Uh, the water and the sea are the same thing. The, the picture is that there's no distinction. The water's on top of the sea and the sea, there's no distinction there. And in the same way, there will be no distinction, no place that the knowledge of the Lord is not on all the earth. The picture is that all those who are saved by God will know him. Not just in their heads, not just information about him, but a deeper, a relational knowing of our God. And it's not that we will know everything. The Bible is clear that God is infinite, that his glory is a bottomless swell that will never run dry. But as Adam and Eve walked in the cool of day in the garden with God, so we shall know him again one day. In the book of Habakkuk, the prophet there uses a similar, he uses the same imagery. He says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so the third thing that we learn about the reign of the Messiah is number three, the Messiah's reign will restore humanity to God. Will restore humanity to God. And if I'm honest, I, I mean, I'm super thankful that God has revealed so much of who he is. The Bible is, is, is an endless wealth of who God is and his promises. I think prayer is amazing. But if I'm honest, I often wish that I could just relate in a more full way to God. I often wish that I could speak to God in a way that a friend talks to a friend, that I could see him, hear him, experience him. But here is a promise that one day we will. There will be a fuller knowledge of the Lord. We will be brought back into the relationship that was lost by sin. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, you need to know that the Bible is clear that your most fundamental problem in life is not that you don't have enough money or that uh, you are struggling in a relationship or that you can't find happiness in your work. The Bible is clear that your greatest problem is that you have sinned against a holy God and deserve the righteous judgment that he brings on the wicked. But God shows his love for us. This passage shows God's love for us in that while we sinned against him, he sent a promised Messiah into the world to die on a cross and arise from the grave so that what we owed could be placed upon him and we could be forgiven. This is only true for those who turn to Christ and trust in him and accept the gift of his grace. So if that's you today, turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord today. This passage is weighty. I struggled in, in even preparing it because I feel like I can't even wrap my own mind and heart around how great these realities are. But the passage is clear and the Bible is clear that Christ will come again. And that we know not the day nor the hour. It could be any time. 
And so if you have not put your faith in Christ, make today the day that you turn to him. As we conclude, I have one question for all of us. And it's a question I ask myself too. The question is, are you ready for the coming of the Lord? For Jesus will say later, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the question is, how can we keep the coming of the Lord before our minds this Christmas? In what practical ways can we think about this reality that Christ will come again? One of the things I think about every time I come across the idea in the Bible that Jesus is coming again is I come to the harsh reality that I hardly think about that. I hardly think about that. And yet Jesus himself said, be ready. So what ways this Christmas can we be ready? Because while Christmas is definitely a time of celebration of the first coming of Christ, it is also a time of anticipation of the second coming. Christians are simultaneously always looking two directions. We're always looking back and we're always looking forward. We're always looking back to remember what God has done. And we're always looking forward to rely and count on the promises he's given us. Even communion, which we just celebrated, and Bruce led us in wonderfully, is a time where we remember what Christ has done and yet at the end of how Paul instructs us, what Bruce read, it says, celebrate it until the Lord returns again, until, until uh, the, the coming of the Lord again, is what that last line refers to. And so how can we make that a focus today? Isaiah chapter 11 gives us a beautiful prophecy, and we see how great the fulfillment of that is in the celebration of the birth of Jesus, that the shoot came from the tree. But this passage is really calling us to think of Christ's second coming, of a glorious picture of a future reign of a king. And so remember these reasons to hope and long for Christ to come again this Christmas for his second advent. Number one, the Messiah's reign is righteous. Number two, the Messiah's reign will establish peace. And number three, the Messiah's reign will restore humanity to God. We're going to finish the service by singing Joy to the World, and I'm going to invite the um, band to come back up to the front. It's interesting. Joy to the World is a classic Christmas song, right? It's one that we sing every year, and it's sung all around. Well, this song was written by Isaac Watts in 1719, and I think many of us would assume that it's based on Luke chapter 2, which is where the angels come and they say, we have good news of great joy. Joy to the world. But actually, Isaac Watts wrote this psalm primarily based on Psalm 98, a psalm. And it's actually a song that's primarily focused on Jesus' second coming. And yet we sing it every Christmas. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. This is his second coming. Let us receive him as king. Let every heart prepare room for him. All heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, but the picture in Psalm 98 is that all creation will be singing on that day. Fields, floods, rocks, hills, plains will all be singing to the Lord because not, not only will we be released from sin 
not only will sorrow be gone, but the curse that was placed on this world will also be gone. Paul says that in Romans chapter 8. He says that creation groans for the day that God will save it too. He's using this kind of metaphor to speak of the one day that that creation will be released from the curse that was put on it in Genesis chapter 3. And we don't often sing the third verse of um, Joy to the World. We we might be singing it today. I'm not sure. Um, But uh, the... um, It says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Again, a picture when Christ comes again, there'll be no more sin, no more sorrow, and no more curse upon the earth. And then he rules the world with truth and grace, makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness, the wonders of his love. It's a picture of the coming king. The Savior reigns. He rules the world. Let earth receive her king. And so let's pray and then sing this song together with joy and anticipation for the coming of our Savior. Father, we thank you for the great and precious promises that you give us in your word. And we confess our lack of awareness and readiness for your second coming. I confess that, Lord. Lord, would you help prepare our hearts? Would you make us ready? Lord, as I said earlier, I just feel, I mean, my heart gets enthralled when I read Isaiah chapter 11, but these truths are too glorious for us to really wrap our minds and hearts around. And so help us, Lord. We need your help. Help us, Lord, to set our eyes on these promises. Keep us wholly devoted to you. Keep us fervent to share the good news of Jesus with the world. And keep us, Lord, in Christ, united to him until the end of our lives. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.